It's the TEH Podcast, episode 88. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. Welcome, everyone, to the podcast. What's going on, Gary? What's, what's, what's new and exciting this week? Uh, well, here it's Super Tuesday in That's our right. state. So, I've been uh, trying to course, avoid that. It is here, too. Yeah. Oh, it is? Oh, yeah. I, uh, the, it, you know, here we have all the early voting stuff. So kind of like everybody I know has already voted. Yep. Um, and also, I, I don't know, just waiting to hear what happens tonight. Of course, I, I don't, we weren't... We didn't get much attention here the last few days. Didn't have all the candidates, but I don't think you either up there. And um, I think State. we had one or two candidates come visit. Um, I know that. I think this is Washington's first uh, time being part of Super Tuesday. Yeah, I think same they for actually, Colorado. They actually intentionally moved the primary date so that it would be the same as everybody else. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing. Um, and yes, like you, since we have vote by mail. I voted like within moments of receiving my ballot so that I could just say, <laughs> no, you can't try and convince me otherwise. It's already committed to paper. Go away. Of course, a lot of people are not that happy now if they voted early since three candidates dropped out. Yeah, so, well. um, you know, but, uh, oh, and this is Colorado is not only our first Super Tuesday, but our first primary, at least in a long time, because uh, we were a caucus state. Until, were you? Until oh, after, after hearing about the Iowa caucuses, it's like, that's just, I don't understand how they even became a thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. So. Well, I could understand a hundred some years ago before telecommunications, I it might've been really useful to actually go to your community center and talk with your fellow citizens and have passionate citizens talk, uh, give their case for their candidate and everybody discuss and come to a consensus and you know, all of that, that might've been useful before the information age. I suppose. Yeah. But these days it just seems like it's a recipe for disaster as it kind of sort of turned out to be. Hey, one of the things that's going on, and this is actually also Washington specific right yeah. now, we can't talk about this. Um, we can't, we can't not talk about the coronavirus. As we record this on Tuesday afternoon, um, Washington is, has turned out to be the epicenter, I guess. For the epicenter, the yeah first deaths in the United States. Uh, and those have actually happened uh, literally like a mile and a half from where I'm standing right now. The hospital at which those individuals um, you know, did pass uh, is a hospital I drive past all the time when I'm you know, going various places. When you're of a certain age, you get to that point where you're thinking, okay, fine, something eventually is going to kill me. What's it going to be? <laughs> so every time I look at the um, the death statistics for this particular virus, uh, the individuals that have passed so far are either elderly, mm-hmm. and that's actually one of the reasons the number is as high as it is, because there was an outbreak in a nursing home, uh, not actually not far from the hospital. And uh, so a number of them were elderly and others had, uh, for lack of a better term, pre-existing conditions or something that otherwise compromised their, uh, their ability to, to handle it. Um, my expectation is that, you know, to the best of our knowledge right now, everybody's pretty much going to get it. Um, it's going to be the flu. It's going to be, you know, whatever that entails for each individual. Uh, it's going to suck in the sense that the death rate appears to be higher than the traditional flu. But um, 
it's one of those things that at least for me personally, as I take a look um, and quote unquote prepare as best we can, um, I'm kind of treating it as inevitable uh, and and just sort of you know not setting my hopes up on on being able to avoid it. Uh, one of the interesting things we ended up uh, taking a run out to Costco which uh, for folks not in the United States, it's a big warehouse store uh, where indeed uh, they had already sold out of of bottled water, which we weren't looking for, uh, toilet paper, which we weren't looking for. We were actually there for some things unrelated to the pandemic. Uh, But uh, man, it was a zoo. And there are lots of stories of of not just Costco, Costco Costco-like stores, but uh, just traditional grocery stores. People kind of panicking a little bit and um, going into a hoarding mode. What's the, what's the thought behind bottled water? I don't get it myself. Yeah, I really I, don't. <laughs> it's not like, and I've, I've, it's funny because I actually had a, an appointment with my dentist uh, earlier today and we were chatting about it and he's not sure either. The, the, the issue is the pandemic's not going to cause the water to stop flowing. I know. Right? <laughs> and in fact, even if the, it, and it's not like they turn the faucets off at night so that somebody has to turn them on in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even if the water department staff is completely decimated, there's still water going to be flowing. And if there's going to be an issue, you know they're going to prioritize life and health uh, uh, utilities like 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 water. So I, if, I don't, yeah. I honestly don't get that either. I really, if don't. we get down to the point, I mean, where the electricity, the electricity has got to stop before the water stops. Okay. Water is like the last thing that's going to, you know, stop. Right. Sure. Sure. If we get down to the point where the water stops flowing to your house, uh, you know, a couple of cases of water from Costco, aren't really going to help you. <laughs> yeah. And at that point, you've, we've probably got bigger problems. Now here, at least in Seattle, um, it's not always the case that the uh, electricity will go before the water because we prepare for what the things we prepare for include earthquakes. And mm-hmm. uh, it is very possible that depending on the specifics of whatever happens to hit us, uh, you know, a water main could get broken oh, uh, where, an, where an electrical line uh, might be a little bit more resilient or electricity comes from a different direction. I don't think the virus has the ability to cause earthquakes yet. Exactly. But, exactly. You know, other you than know. <laughs> other than the stampede of people rushing into Costco. Um I yeah, I was surprised, you know, I was thinking, "Oh, wow, I'm uh I, I wonder if Leo wants to do the show today because obviously <laughs> there's a full-on quarantine, you know, outbreak mode uh going on in Washington state according to the news depending upon what you watch no not again, not really again you know it's it's, it's I was, and i was telling my dentist this this morning it's like i live as my he, life as he has his fingers in your mouth you know? <laughs> exactly yes um he actually has had a couple of people cancel on him because of the virus And he'd ask them, okay, are you showing symptoms? Well, no. Well, did you travel anywhere recently? Well, no. But, but, but coronavirus, no, it's no, no. But, um, and like I said, we kind of sort of live in a, I don't know, isolated. That's the wrong word. We're we're kind of self-quarantined half the time anyway. So if I have to stay home for two weeks, it's like, oh, well. Uh, We we have a huge flaw on our our uh, firewall, our physical firewall, uh-huh. which of course we have a kid in school. Right. So yeah, I work from home. I sit in my office all day. Uh, I should be good, except that I have yeah this uh, this pipeline basically to everything, <laughs> every germ that's mule. out there. Yeah. <laughs> so I get you know my share of flu and flus and colds, and it's like where does it come from? Well, there's only one source. Uh, it gets brought home, but um, 
but yeah, I, I look at the, uh, the numbers and it's interesting. I, you know, I love looking at numbers no matter what the situation is, whether it's a election or something like this, the numbers fascinate me. And you said you feel it's inevitable that you get it. And I think that's the general consensus uh, feeling, but there's some interesting stuff like the 1918 Spanish flu, right? Mm -hmm. Still misnamed Spanish flu. Right. Um, I, I don't have the number in front of me cause I wasn't expecting to talk about this, but I was amazed to hear that it was not given to 100% of the population of the earth, considering a hundred million people died at the time of the Spanish flu. Not everybody got it. Matter of fact, right. the percentage was surprisingly low. Um, and uh, I just don't, I remember it was something like 27% or 47% or something, but there was a large number of people that never got it. And uh, that surprised me. Um, I thought, thought out of all the epidemics we've had that we actually have a you know, act paper trail and numbers and all that, um, that that would be the one that just everybody had to get it. Uh, and it's kind of the same thing I think could happen here. If you look at the numbers, there's a great chart that's at Wikipedia where somebody has taken the numbers coming out of the China health department of you know, all their statistics. They publish them daily and the world health organization is actually in there and been verifying them. So it's not like there's propaganda involved. I don't think, mm -hmm. um, but the number of people getting it at this point, while we're talking is just hit about 80,000. The country has 1.4 billion people. You would think from the news that pretty much everybody in China has this, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But 80,000 people is a fraction of a fraction of a percent of people in China. Even in the Wuhan province, a tiny percentage has actually gotten it. And in fact, they keep track of the recoveries versus people that have gotten it. And a few days ago, we passed the halfway mark where more of the people that have been infected, more than half of them are now listed as recovered. Yep. So the number of active cases has actually been dropping for the last two weeks as recoveries are far outpacing new infections. Fascinating. So we might be, if you, if you extrapolate, if you do like, you know, linear math on it and extrapolate those numbers out, you're actually looking at, you know, if nothing changes about two or three weeks from now, almost, you know, very few, we're talking about a couple hundred actual active cases left in China with the majority being like, you know, uh, recovered or there is no, the other alternative, but that other alternative right. also means you can't pass the disease on um, <laughs> or get it again for that matter. Right. Uh, the, so you'd be looking at maybe that number still remaining under a hundred thousand. So a hundred thousand people actually suffering from the illness in a country of 1.4 billion. The equivalent in the United States would be something less than 30,000 people getting it. If we have the same thing goes on here and and we have more warning of course they had a you know the first couple of weeks were a little hectic trying to figure out what was going on uh we've got more warning um they do have the advantage of socialized medicine and an author a thought uh, you know a uh 
a regime that's can uh, come down hard and impose, impose quarantines as they want, right? And to say authoritarian. Wow. Yeah, I can't see? even say it. Yeah, ah, wow. it's authoritarian. There we go. Yeah, there you go. So, <laughs> you know, but if it's the same thing, we would end up with less people actually right. getting right. it here and probably only about 2,000 deaths compared to our normal about thirty to 40,000 flu deaths per year. Right. So that's word, good, good news. A word you used early on, though, I think is, is actually one of the, the, the scariest when it comes yeah. to this, and that's media. Because uh, yeah. one of the things that's happening here is that the media is absolutely, um, you know, giving this all of its 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 entire attention, especially here, right? Especially at oh, at imagine. Ground Zero, we've got um, you know con- almost constant coverage on our radio stations, our local TV stations. They're doing specials, you know, that kind of stuff. And I kind of sort of get it because yeah, it's news. It fits the definition of news. Um, it sounds really scary, but like the information about you know p- the potentially reaching a tipping point in China of, of things getting better. Yep, haven't heard that out here yet. It's been more about look at all yep. the people at Costco stop hoarding all the masks, and uh, you know th- those kinds of, of stories. Nobody said that. It, it's not that I haven't heard that here either. I had to look that information up. Right. And do the math myself and say, oh, wow. And actually, I did see one article today that I didn't read fully through, but just about how, how well China's response has stopped the spread uh, in China. So I assume they kind of came to the same conclusion. Right. But it's, um, it's, yeah. But I think the main thing was, you know, back to my original point, was that even the Spanish flu in 1918, not right. everybody got it, which is incredible to think. And it's right. got to be more than just contact, right? I don't think in 1918, people were quarantining themselves and doing things um, to like keep themselves isolated. Like, you know, I could, oh, if I, w- if I was on my own, I could just buy a bunch of food now and just not leave the house for the next month, right? I don't think that's it. That's not why people don't get it. I think that if you walk around and you go places, and you interact with other people, you have a percent chance of getting it right. from somebody. But you have also a percent chance of not contracting it. I also, I think it's probably even more complicated than that because my guess is that there is some percentage of people who get it but never become symptomatic, which right. means that they never have cause, for example, to get tested. Um, they never, you know, they, they show up as never having gotten it when in fact they kind of sort of did, but it just didn't matter. Um, and that's a that's a good a good number. I mean, whether you know it or not. Oh yeah. Having people. I mean, that's the thing. So eighty thousand reported cases in China. What if it was eight hundred thousand reported? You know, or eight hundred thousand cases that were unreported. Right, ten times the number. That would actually be a good thing because that yeah. means the death rate isn't two percent. It's point two percent. Right. And th- so either way, if there aren't all these unreported cases, that's good. If there are all these unreported cases, that's good too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, unreported or reported, people not being symptomatic and not spreading it is fine. You know, I, maybe that's what happened in 1918. But, you know, that, that maybe everybody did get it. There was just a lot of people who didn't. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff we don't know. But There's I clearly think- a lot of stuff we don't know about, about this current pandemic and just exactly how bad it, it is or isn't going to be. Like I said, just for my own mm-hmm. mental health, if and nothing else, I just sort yeah. of decided, you know what, I'm probably going to get it. 
it's probably going to be the flu and I'll, you know, I'll probably <laughs> be just fine. Um, been there, done that, can do it again. Uh, and if I don't get it, fantastic. It just means I'm not, I'm not panicking and worrying about it all day long. Yeah. Now, the reason I brought this up at yes. all um, is because we live in an internet-connected world. And what happens when something happens in the world? The scammers come out of the woodwork. Mm. Um, there are uh, already uh, many scam emails, phishing attempts, bogus sales, uh, there's also stories of people who are hoarding or trying to resell things like hand sanitizers or face masks on eBay for exorbitant prices. Um, there's just so many ways that scammers are trying to take advantage of this situation. And what I wanted to do was just remind all of our listeners that, um, or maybe it's our listener, that <laughs> if it sounds too good to be true, it's probably not true. Be skeptical. Uh, both the CDC, um, let's see, I think it's the CDC, it's, it's the FTC.gov link that I'll I have in the show notes. Um, they're talking about scammers following the headlines. And of course, um, even the World Health Organization at the UN has a very similar uh, caution as well to just be aware of people trying to take advantage of the fear and the paranoia surrounding uh, the uh, the coronavirus. Yep, definitely. So, so in other news, something a little bit more traditional. Um, yeah. I got myself a new YubiKey yesterday. A YubiKey? What's a YubiKey? YubiKey is a physical key. It looks, it's about the size of a key actually, except the one end of it looks like a USB connector because that's what it is. It's a USB device. Each one is uniquely cryptographically identifiable and it is used as a security token, as your second factor, if you like. So what I've done is I've configured my uh, Gmail account, my Google account, my most important account, to uh, allow it as a second factor when I log into a machine for the first time. So what that means is that you know, I come up to this brand new machine, like the one I had a couple of weeks ago, um, I log into Gmail and it says, hey, this is the first time you've logged into this machine, we need a second form of identification, please insert your authentication token into a USB port. And I have it with me. I plug it in. I push a button and it says, oh, yep, you must be you. Here you go. Here's your account. Uh, this one, it actually replaces a previous version of a YubiKey that I had. This one also includes NFC, near field communications. Uh, that's the technology that allows you to uh, wave a credit card at a credit card reader, or in the case of an iPhone or my Android phone, wave the phone using Google Pay or Apple Pay um, at one of these credit card readers and have it um, you know, exchange a secure token that allows you to make a credit card payment. The theory, and I haven't gotten this to work yet, but the theory is that I can then use this YubiKey as a second form of authentication on my phone so that um, if I'm about to do something sensitive, it either an app on the phone that cares about this stuff or maybe the phone itself could say, hey, uh, we need a second form of identification. Make sure you're you. Hold your YubiKey up against the back of the phone. And then it would exchange the NFC information that says, yep, yep, you are who you say you are. Carry on. 
I just find that kind of technology really, really interesting. Now, in my case, uh, with uh, my laptop, um, as you know, we'll be, I'll be traveling in a couple of months. I'll be taking my laptop with me. So I was actually looking at this as... Uh, make sure that's all you're taking with you out of Washington State. Um, oh, um, I, well, I don't have any Purell. I couldn't get any hand sanitizer <laughs> to wipe the machine down with. Okay. Anyway, the, um, so I, I was looking at it with the idea of, okay, let's make sure, let's do the thing where you make things secure when you travel. And as it turns out, the, the laptop I've had for the last year and a half has a fingerprint reader and I didn't even know it. So I turned that on. And now instead of asking me for my, um, YubiKey when I log into Windows, it just says hit the fingerprint thing and that's good enough too. So it's just an interesting additional form of second factor for two or an additional type of second factor for multi-factor authentication. I, uh, I really, really uh, like it as an, as an approach, especially for people that really feel more comfortable having a physical thing as your second factor. Uh, it makes a lot of sense, and it's very, very convenient. And I'm sure that I'm only, you know, scratching the surface on the kinds of scenarios in which case, uh, you know, in which it can be used. I'm curious uh, if it can be used in addition to, like, the Google Authenticator as a second form. Um, that's actually how I've got my Google oh. account set up. Well, um, that's useful. That's yes. a back. If anything, it might be worth it for me to get get it as a backup, not carry it with me. Oh right. Have it put away somewhere in the, in a safe or something. Right. And know that if like I do, you know, people have two factor all figured out and then they get a new phone right. <laughs> and they decide I'm going to get rid of my old number. I'm getting a lot of spam at that phone number right. and then they suddenly realize that oh wait a minute. I all my two factor stuff yeah. was going to that or that was my backup and now I lost this and you know all that. So I tried to um well, there Make actually sure. are a lot of different solutions to that problem for yes. the providers that support it. One of the most frustrating things of all are providers like banks, for example, that yeah. uh, will do um, SMS, which is typically what you need your phone number for, and only SMS as, a, as your form of second factor. Right. That's the scenario where you need to be really really careful if you ever change your phone number because at that point you no longer have access to the SMS messages sent to the original phone number and potentially that number could get reused at some point and somebody else could get the notification. Yeah, but they would only have the second factor, not the first factor. So right, well, right. it wouldn't matter to them. But the, uh, the, the point is it matters to you because you don't have that second factor. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's the kind of a thing you need to carefully coordinate yeah. as you're changing phone numbers. The solution, the, the solutions that I, I hadn't thought of the YubiKey as, as a backup. Um, and it is a solid one. Uh, another that Gmail at least, uh, provides is you can print out one time authentication codes, those are the kinds of things mm -hmm. you can then put in your safe yep. or in my case, encrypted somewhere safely. Uh, the other thing is um, they still allow you, I think, to use an alternate email address. They'll do SMS and Google Authenticator. That's where I was headed. Google Authenticator is itself is kind of a pain because whenever you get a new phone, even when you don't change the number, it's really difficult to take your Google Authenticator and move it to a different device. Yes. You actually have to turn off two-factor 
and then turn it back on again on the new device. I, um, oh, I haven't experienced that, and I've done it a lot. The problem I have, and what I thought you were going to say, is that you, you get a new Google Authenticator code, and the only way to get it on the new device is to basically reset the other device. Let, uh, let me explain. I have an iPhone and an iPad. Both are using Google Authenticator uh, as a way I can get some codes for various different things. Google Authenticator is used by a lot of different things. Right. If I were to, say, get a new iPhone, I don't care about the old iPhone, right? That's gone. The iPad, though, has all the Google Authenticator stuff on it. If I go and say, great, I want to set that all up on my new iPhone, I now have to basically set it up on the new iPhone and the iPad at the same time and then throw away the old Google Authenticator listings okay. on the okay. iPad. It's so a pain, I have, but I have not two solutions for saying. you. I've got yeah. two solutions for you. This is great. I used to do, have to do that. What I decided to do instead, the way you associate a device with the account is you take a you you are presented with a QR code. Right. Yes. That you then point your iPad and your iPhone at. Yes. And presumably you're doing this at the same time yep. while that QR code is on the screen. Yep. Screenshot it. Oh, uh, okay, okay. That's what I did. I actually That'd screenshotted it and then saved that in that secure encrypted yada yada location so that when I got another device, all I really needed to do then was um, bring up the Google Authenticator, point it at that saved screenshot of the QR code, and boom, everything was all in sync. I, that, uh, that, that won't help the next time, but it'll help the time after that. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, exactly. We have to, you have, exactly, you have to think about this one beforehand. Now, it's also useful in cases where, um, like uh, for, uh, an or say you're helping out an organization and there are organizational accounts mm. that multiple people are, are authorized to log into. And the way they do that is they all know the username and password. If you want to put two-factor on that account, because it's a really important account, um, this is another way to do that, right? You can save the QR code in someplace secure that's accessible to all the uh, um, organizational members that might need access so that they too can then set up the appropriate two-factor with their device um, as well as your own. You don't even have to have them in the same room then. I don't do any of that anymore. Yeah. What I do instead is I use Authy, A-U-T-H-Y. Um, it's an app on my Android, and I'm pretty sure it's there for your iPhone. Uh, there's also a desktop app for Windows, and I'm uh -huh. pretty sure it's out there for the Mac. Yep. And what it does, uh, it works just like Google Authenticator, with one exception. You can password protect the authentication tokens that it has, and it then encrypts them, of course, and saves them to its cloud. So what that means is I install Authy on device A, I set up all the QR codes, I do all the two-factor authentications, I walk over to device B, I set up Authy, I log in with that account, and poof, all of those two-factor authentication tokens are now available on that device as well. I actually use Authy on my MacBook because sometimes when I travel, I don't take my iPad and I take my phone and my laptop. Mm -hmm. And then that leaves me with one device that has, uh, you know, the ability to authenticate my phone. 
Right. And it's the, the device that is most likely to get stolen or broken or right. whatever. So having Authy on my MacBook, uh, I almost never, ever use it. But it's nice to know I've got it there just in case. It's, it's funny. I use it um, on, on Windows. Uh, and I use it because sometimes it's easier to open it up, look at my code, and use copy-paste yeah. than it is to reach into my pocket, <laughs> grab my phone, unlock my phone, switch through the app, bring up the right... I mean, it's just... You get the idea, right? It's a oh, yeah, no. It's, I, I, yeah, you're right. <laughs> But it it's is. the same idea. It's the same two-factor authentication code on multiple devices. And of course, um, theoretically, I suppose it exposes you just a little bit more. You have more devices that you need to keep secure from other individuals' access. But um, that's significantly easier than um, you know the, the scenario where you've actually right. lost the device you care about. Yep. So anyway, so yeah, YubiKey. Um, in, fact, <laughs> in fact, my... LastPass account, which is what I use for all of my passwords, is now also protected with two-factor using my YubiKey, at least on my desktop, which is actually kind of cool. Nice. So. Cool. So, what's been going on with you lately? I do, uh... yeah. Well, I have got some interesting stuff. It, it is 2020. And 2020 has been a, a year that's been looming for a couple of years for me because my whole journey as an internet entrepreneur started in the mid-90s. And it started because of an invention uh, by a company called Macromedia <laughs> called Shockwave. And basically what Shockwave was, was uh, a plugin that you could use to put interactive media on a web page. And it was released shortly after the web basically became a thing. You know, it was about a year, two years later. Uh, in late 1995, um, they released Shockwave. And I happened to be working with Macromedia Tools at the time. And uh, when I, and I actually creating little games at the time using it. And at that time, the only way if you had a game to get it to somebody else with a computer was to have them buy a disc you know, physically get the disc and put it in their computer and use it. Or maybe download something. It was really early days for that. But there was no real other way to distribute uh, games. With Shockwave, it became, it changed everything because I could make a game, stick it on a web page, and then somebody else could go to that web page and play it. And it drastically reduced the distribution model for games. So I started creating games, and that was the beginning of my, my journey there. I created tons of games and started a company to create games. I created games for myself. I created games from other companies, um, all of that. I did some of the very, I had a lot of very first things in web based gaming were me. Uh, and I spoke at conferences uh, on it for years. As a matter of fact, for eight years, I spoke about web-based games at the Game Developers Conference, which, by the way, was just postponed because of the coronavirus this year. <laughs> but eventually, Shockwave uh, was joined by another technology called Flash, which was also from Macromedia. And both Shockwave and Flash were different ways to distribute games and other media on web pages. And I built up several sites that had games and at one point had more than 200 active games online and hundreds that I developed for other companies, major names too, for some of the games I developed. Um, and some of those sites still exist today 
including the main one called GameScene.com. Still exists today with about 150 of those Flash and Shockwave games. But it's 2020, and 2020 means that this is the year that Adobe, who bought Macromedia a long time ago, um, has said they are going to stop producing Flash. They did this for Shockwave a few years ago. They said, we're going to stop producing Shockwave. You know, you can't get the plugin anymore. The only way you can have Shockwave running in your web browser now and play my Shockwave games are if you installed it years ago and have never uninstalled it. Flash is going to join that soon. There'll be no other way, to, no way to get Flash and install it, and thus no way to play the games at my site. This is bringing up an interesting thing because, uh, and I wish Kevin were here because Kevin's really into this, is you know archiving stuff. It's like how do I, uh, you know, re, you know, years from now there'll be no way to if I want to show somebody how this game I made worked, I couldn't even bring it up on a computer. So, um, in terms of archiving, I could try to make standalone executables. It would actually be for, it'd actually be impossible for me to do for the Shockwave games because I don't even have the software that was used to develop those anymore. They, uh, Adobe stopped making that in 2014, and it won't work on the old versions. Won't even work on current computers now. And Flash, I I could probably put a lot of work, weeks of work, into converting all those games to executable apps, but eventually those would stop working during some operating system upgrade at some point as well. So my thoughts are that I'm going to start a project this year, perhaps very soon, where I archive them, not as playable games, but uh, take video of them, go in to each of these games, revisit them, some of which I haven't played myself in years, and play them doing screen capture perhaps with audio commentary by myself, which might be interesting because I could talk about things I remember from making the games and save them all out as videos. And then from have them for myself, upload them perhaps to archive.org. So if somebody remembers one of my games and wants to see what that was about, they could go find this video and there's me, the developer, talking about the game while playing through the game a few times, You know, in the case of puzzle games and things like that. Um, and at least then you could see what the graphics look like, how the game played, and all of that. Um, so anyway, that's that's a project I'm thinking of doing so, this year, unless I come up with a better idea. So I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I want to play these games. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> I want I want to play them 20 years from now. Uh-uh. Um, Not going to happen. Well, well. So let me ask you a question. Yeah. Um, do these games run on Linux? There was a Flash player for Linux briefly, but that's long dead. Okay. So we run into a licensing issue, but it's only a licensing issue. Yeah. Set up a machine. Set up a virtual machine. Okay. Using some version of some operating system. Probably Windows. Probably Windows. Um, Install all your games in that. Yeah. And then distribute the virtual machine. So what you've got then is essentially a time capsule of an operating system and uh, an installation of Flash that works. You could um, take it bare bones so that, I mean, the the issue with Flash certainly in recent years has been it's incredibly buggy. It's a security nightmare. 
um, its reputation for having security holes is is legion. So one approach would be to take that virtual machine and rip out any networking, right? So the only thing you can do is right. play games. But that's one thing that comes to mind. Uh, what I'm wondering is if, I mean, the Internet Archive has to be doing something along these lines. Not to, to really. Uh, there is a independent project which I won't even name, that I don't know how to feel about because it has a shockwave flash and I think a couple other... Oh, is that the one that's already stealing your games? Yeah. So (laughs) I I didn't know... So I saw that they were doing this. You know, I heard somewhere. So the first thing I did was, well, let me go... And they have their list of thousands of games. Uh, Let me go and see which of my games they have in there. And it turns out they have two. And I had two reactions to this. Reaction number one was that I can't believe they took two of my games without my permission and ended up distributing them with this. The second reaction was only two? I, <laughs> I was like, I, I was billed as the father of web-based games at one point. You know, I wrote all these books. I spoke on the subject. I, as far as I know, my first time I ever talked at the Game Developers Conference, I called my session Web-Based Games. And I think that's the first occurrence of the term web-based games. So to have only two, I was really <laughs> offended. At the same time, I want them to take my two games out of there because they didn't ask nicely. Uh, and, and actually, I was further offended because one of the games was attributed to my company. The other game was attributed in the list to unknown. I'm like, unknown? <laughs> what are you talking about? That's clearly, you know, anyway. So... So anyway, I don't know how to feel about that. A problem is my games are highly secure to the websites. So, uh, you know, there used to be a problem where people would just steal the games, which is probably like why I have one attributed to unknown. People would go to my sites, look at the source code, grab the media files, and then install on their own sites and then put it up and then put advertising on it. And this was happening all over the place. As a matter of fact, if you played a Flash game uh, online during the heyday of Flash games, probably was a 90% chance you were playing it at some site that had no right to show it, right? There was just tons of these sites out there. And so what I did was I tried to be clever and I put stuff in my games to make sure that they were, could only be played at my sites. If you tried to steal them, they, they wouldn't work. Um, and I had so much code in there to handle that. I mean, I'm talking about not just simply checking, oh, what site am I at? But like asking the site you know, the local site for like special security codes and not, you know, playing if it didn't get them. I had time bombs in there. So there were certain ways that security worked, but it would only check uh, after a certain time because the problem was that if somebody tried to steal the game and it didn't work, they would be encouraged to try to hack the code to get it to work. But if they stole it and then it seemed to work, they would move on. And then a month later, the game wouldn't work anymore, and they'd be long gone. You know, right. they wouldn't care. They, they're not going to go back and try to hack it now. So I, tons of stuff. So in order to actually get these games to work, even if it was a virtual machine or in anything, I actually have to go in and, uh, for lack of a, a simpler term, recompile the games. Right. Which means the Shockwave games, I don't really have a great way to do that right now. And to... for the Flash games, I kind of do, but it's not as easy as it seems. Opening up a game that you created in like 2003 
in, on a 2020 computer. Oh, I get it. Yeah. With, you know, Adobe Animate, which I, was what Flash became. It's going to mean there's going to be font issues. There's going to be formatting issues. There's going to be, this is incompatible. This this is no longer supported. Yeah. Going through, working with each game, test, going through a whole testing phase to see if it still really works. So you're, you're talking to a guy who, I maintain one specific Windows XP virtual yeah. machine simply so that I can run the development tools from 20 years ago to maintain a command line tool that I wrote 30 years ago um, in case I ever need to make a change to it because, of course, all the tools have right. changed in the intermediate time. So, yeah, I, I totally get that. The other direction, I mean, again, I, 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 I don't claim to understand any of the complexity, but mm. um, I'm going to go back to my virtual machine scenario. Whereas if that virtual machine can also mimic the, or actually implement a web server that mimics whatever it is your games are looking for, um, again, it could all be a self-contained package. Yeah, that's probably not going to, what, what would be needed is each game would have to be altered to basically not be secured anymore. Uh, that would probably be easier than doing all of that, but it'd yeah. still take weeks of time to go through 150 games. Um, and then, then yeah, uh, so then you'd end up you, with a virtual machine that would sit there and maybe nobody would ever use it. <laughs> I don't know. You know, an, arch an archivist in 20 years might want to look at one game for some weird reason. Right. I don't know. But if I did, if I doing the videos is easier and it's more permanent because it, nothing could phase it, right? You know, virtual machine, maybe there's no way to run that virtual machine in the future. Right. Um, but a video is just going to be some standard format. You know, it might be become an old format. But I was going to say it might get transcoded a half a dozen times in the next 30 years, but yeah. Yeah, but there'd be this way to at least see the game. There are games, not all of the games that I created are available. There's some, like the ones I created for other companies, that are completely gone. And I would have loved to have recorded video. Uh, there's a couple of websites I created that are completely gone that I wish I had just maybe taken the 10 minutes to just give a guided tour of the site with screen capture on and then squirrel that video away to some folder somewhere. Right. Um, just so I could see like, what did it look like? What was it like to use it? What were the features? And the same with these games. I just want to see like, what was, you know, what was the deal with this game? How did it work? And, and if somebody asked me about it, I want to be able to point them to it and say, here's a video of me playing the game. And the commentary itself is, could be valuable because I'll be hopefully talking about things like, um, you know, the, what the development process was. What were the inspirations for this game? Uh, you know, why did we make this design decision or that design decision? That kind of thing. Um, so anyway, it's, it's a project I wanna, I'd like to do. And strangely enough, Windows plays a big part in this because uh, I don't have any way to run Shockwave currently on a Mac. Yeah. Um, I do have, what I have is in Parallels on my Mac, I have a Windows 10 virtual machine. Mm -hmm. That's not the one I'm talking about. I've got a Windows 7 virtual machine. I've just been too lazy to delete. <laughs> and it turns out if I go into that, it's got, Shockwave, Shockwave and Flash running in Firefox. Don't delete that. And I'm going to use that virtual machine to screen capture the games one by one. So something else just dawned on me. Yeah. This is something that I don't understand. 
but it's apparently very popular. You, of course, have heard of Twitch. Oh, yeah. Maybe I should do this as a Twitch thing. That's what I was thinking, is that people apparently love to watch other people playing games. Um, so maybe you do it all as a Twitch thing so that um, maybe you have a live audience. I don't know. You can certainly set that up with, with, your, uh, um, with your patrons. I don't know, whomever. But um, that might also be at least a short-term kind of archive. I'm always someone who's going to download the MP4. I want my own archive of my own videos sure. always. Yeah. But um, that might be an interesting place to, uh, and it's certainly the closest thing to a target audience, people who like to watch other people playing games. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. E either way, I've got, I figure this is something that it's a goal for 2020 for every single game I've made to go through and how many, play them. How many did you say there are? It's about 150. So that's two days per game if you do it, if you want to do it within yeah. a year. That's I'd probably a do them in time. groups though. I, I'd probably do like five at a time, you know, just do one, you know, record it, but then go right on, you know, and do a group of five right, right. and save the videos out. And, you know, maybe, maybe I'll start trying to make it a weekend thing where I do, you know, I try to do five every weekend and, uh, and yeah, make a, make a checklist, check them off, save them as an archive. And then the site, gamescene.com, I've already put warnings on the site. And, you know, I don't plan to keep it around. It's already the, the revenue from it, ad revenue, the once mighty ad revenue, <laughs> is almost completely gone. Uh, and I can understand why, you know, because if you can't play the games, there's no point being at the site. Right. Um, there are still, I know, a few people, a trickle of traffic that plays there. Um, but even though technically they could have an older install of something like Firefox with those plugins and still be going to the site after 2020. Um, at some point I just have to basically, pull yeah, pull the plug. And so that my goal is for that and a couple of other sites I've got that are kind of uh, satellite sites of it. Um, yeah, end, of, end of 2020, definitely maybe even, you know, the fall or whatever. I want to complete this project first and and then maybe what I should do is, you know, put this, if I put it at archive.org, I, I would, of course, create a library. You create, you know, a library mm -hmm. and say, this is what this library is about. Put all the videos for it there and maybe just point the domain uh, or to, to it or to a probably to at my corporate homepage, my main homepage, have a page explaining what game scene was and saying, here, you can go and see the videos of these games. And I still have, you know, some of these games are not dead. Some of these games are now, uh, matter of fact, the best ones are now iOS games you can play on iPhone and iPad. And, um, you know, those versions live on. Uh, and, and right, so wherever these, guys are, wherever these guys are hosted, you want to make sure you're pointing people at your... Uh... Yeah, I, w I want to make sure. So they probably point yeah. to a page at my site and that, that would say, hey, looking for Gold Strike, looking for Mahjong Solitaire, looking for, you know, whatever here are the apps, you know, you can get the apps for these, right. these, right. these games are alive and well, just in a different form. And then if you're looking for an old game and want to reminisce, you know, go over here to uh, this video archive that has a lot of them, but unfortunately not all, some of those games are already gone forever. So since we're talking about servers and such, this is an interesting transition to our possibly off topic, but still kind of cool segment. Um, you indicated that you had some server issues. 
Yeah. So uh, I don't, I don't want to go t- in too much depth on this because it gets rather technical, but I had uh, suddenly on Thursday, a uh, my server got really slow, like really, really slow. And which was odd because it had been years where it had been nothing but fit super fast. <laughs> you know, I had finally found a you know great server configuration for all my sites. I had everything optimized and it had just been like, server problems have been a thing of the past. You know, go back 20 years or 15 years yeah. and server problems are just something to come up every once in a while. Every day. But I, I had years of like, where, hey, I guess that's no longer a thing. And then all of a sudden Thursday morning, my site just went to a crawl and I notified uh, support as supposed to have great support at, uh, you know, the company that I use. And um, I got kind of a lackluster response. Like they told me, well, everything seems to be okay with the server, which I already told them. Everything did seem to be okay at the server, but it still was slow. And so they were like, well, we're looking into it. And I waited hours and hours and still looking into it. And, Finally, the day ended, and I was like, well, they're still looking into it. I, I know they work 24 hours, so I'll probably wake up in the morning, and it'll be fixed. And it wasn't fixed. In the morning, it was just as bad, if not worse. And so I you know, put, try to light a fire under that. But at the same time, I thought, well, you know what? I'm just uh, – this is all hands on deck. I'm going to try to also figure it out. I didn't think I'd have much of a chance considering – the server experts are working on it, but you know, what the hell I'll go in. So I Googled a couple things and in about 10 minutes, I found the solution and fixed it. I'll just twiddle this knob over here. <laughs> exactly. It was, it was just a knob. <laughs> and it was just, I, I had a couple symptoms to like exactly what was going on <clears throat> with, you know, some sites were slow, others weren't. And there were differences between why some of the sites were and some of, you know, what the, what some of the sites were and what, the, the slow ones were and the fast ones were. And I Googled that and I came up with a few people talking about a similar issue over the years. I came up with a couple of solutions that clearly are not going to help. And I came up with one solution, one knob to, to turn that somebody said, help them. I turned that knob and bam, problem solved. And uh, so, yeah, I was. Have there been any repercussions since you turned that knob? None. Uh, apparently, switching the knob, which is the uh, maximum number of server, max server requests knob for those that really care. Um, it's one of those things where if you turn it too high, you could get into trouble. You know, the higher you turn that knob, the more of your CPU and memory are going to be used. Right. That's fine as long as you don't, don't run out of CPU power and memory. If right. you do, if you overload it, you're in trouble. But I was able to actually see the amount of CPU use, memory use going up as I increased that number. And I wasn't getting near the danger zone. I went basically more or less from 25% CPU usage, just as one example. And as I increased the number, I saw it go to 30% and 35%. And you know, even going to just slightly above was fine, fixed the server. So going to 35% was more than doubling right. the number of, you know, uh, requests. So I, I'm not worried about it because I don't think I'm anywhere close. I think I can go way higher on that number and be fine. Um, I think what may have happened is as servers get more complex and as more services are added, you know, every update, there's like, we've added this feature. 
we've added that feature, you know, right. each one of those things is a process that's kind of running. So like a server that's quiet, you know, like you, you spin up a server and nobody knows about it. It's still probably got 50 processes running. At least. Doing all sorts of things, right? At least. And the problem is that, you know, if say the original number was 150, the problem is that it probably maybe I was at 100 and some services that were running default. And then the leftover processes were handling requests from users. Well, I think that number creeped up and at some point got so close to 150 that there just were not any processes left over to handle regular requests from users. Yeah. And it just, probably if I increased it by 25, it would have been fine. But and I'm, I'm happy doubling it. To, you've, you've experienced this with just even, you know, Macs and, and Windows machines where, you know, a regular OS update, they're not changing anything about the operating system, but it's just a little bit bigger or it's just a little bit more CPU intensive. And at some point your machine reaches kind of a tipping point where uh, things cascade. Right. And I, it I, sounds I, like that's what happened to you. Yeah, I'm just disappointed that the uh, the server experts didn't think to try to tweak that knob right uh, right from the get go because it only took me ten minutes to find that and right. uh, so anyway yeah so your yeah. server's all happy again server's happy again and I'm I'm moving towards uh, probably getting a new server later this year just time to increase right you know CPU and memory right. and drive speed and all that stuff. It's been a few years I've been on the same right. server, um, but I have some things to do uh, before I, like those game, like those game sites I'm talking about retiring. Right. Those, I don't want to move to a new server with those sites. Sure. And only to find out now I have to spend two days because those sites aren't working anymore because something changed. <laughs> and I'm like, this sucks because I'm retiring right. these sites anyway. Right. So I want to get close enough to retirement for those that if something does go wrong, I can just shrug and say, oh, guess it's oh. retired. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. So um, did you watch Mr. Robot? I did. I loved it. So this is just one of those observational kind of things. I miss Mr. Robot. I loved Mr. Yeah, Robot. And it was an interesting story for sure. But one of the things I appreciated the most about it is that they did tech right. Um, you know, they were showing... Uh, real operating systems, real commands, um, you know, things that actually made sense to the people that actually would care, which of course is a subset of the people watching, but it, it's, it's funny. <clears throat> I have this discussion with my wife every once in a while. Um, so like last night we were watching, I forget, some show and they were doing something on a computer and immediately I could no longer suspend my disbelief because that's not how it works, right? They do some magical hand-waving on a keyboard and all of a sudden everything's wonderful again or you know, they uncover somebody's password or they just happen to type it in right the first time or any number of, of completely implausible scenarios that seem to be the mainstay for technology on uh, mainstream uh, TV shows. Um, and, of course, it irks me every time. Turns out my wife, who's a former nurse, has the exact same reaction to medical type things uh, when we're watching a medical drama or some kind of medical show. It's like, no, that's not how it works. That's just not the way things are. And in, um, uh, in this case, it just reminded me last night of how much I miss Mr. Robot and how much I enjoyed them doing. The, the place where they did, um, of necessity, uh, kind of sort of 
break uh, the laws of physics, if you will, is that um, things still happen too quickly, right? They're still able to you know, break into this network too quickly or, or access the highly secure server penetrating five layers of security in a few seconds. No, it's not quite how it works, but at least the tools, the techniques, the screenshots and all that kind of stuff were at least plausible along the way. Yeah, that's the curse of the uh, technologist, right? We can't suspend disbelief when technology is wrong, even if the rest of the show right. is. Uh, <laughs> I'll like that's not how you you can't break into a computer like that. And my wife will be like, "You realize they're vampires, right?" But <laughs> the computer password—that's where you draw the line. I'm like, "Oh, yeah." So, you know, my pet peeve is, you know, in addition to computer stuff, is always the phone trace. Keep them oh. on the phone for, you got to keep them on the phone for three minutes so we can trace the call. Right. Like, no, it doesn't work that way. It never worked that way. <laughs> but uh, it but may have worked that suspense. way once upon a time. Oh, no. a long, long time ago. But <laughs> exactly. not since they started making movies where they have the, you got to keep them on the phone for three minutes. And I don't get that either because there are other good ways to create suspense. It seems like a lazy way. And you still, and the thing is, it's not like, okay, the 80s and 90s, throwing that out there. 2020, still today, I, there was some show I was watching, and they were like, got to keep them on the phone for three minutes to trace the call. I'm like, oh my, it's still, it's 2020, come on. <laughs> you don't need that any, you know, you, you never needed that. Yeah. All right. Anyway. So, put those gripes out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> we do a whole podcast just on that. <laughs> this is suspension of disbelief this week. Yeah, really. Let, let's not. Yeah. Let's keep the enthusiast in the enthusiast. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yes, yes. Good um, things. Wonderful Speaking miracle. of, uh, moving on to the blatant self-promotion segment, um, I'm going to point you all at uh, an article on Ask Leo designing my new desktop. I mentioned, I mentioned a couple times now that I got myself a new machine, and it's awesome. Um, I'm really enjoying it. It's... Um, a 16-core AMD processor. It's got oodles of RAM, oodles of horsepower, lots of... The only place that I skimped on a little bit was the, uh, uh, the drive. It's only, it has only a one terabyte SSD in it, uh, but it's got room for two more of the M.2 form factor, which means they're even smaller and faster. And as, as somebody commented on the article earlier today, they're about the size and shape of a stick of gum. Um, which is just just amazing to me. Um, but anyway, I'm having a lot of fun with that. So if you're curious as to what kind of a machine gets Leo excited, go visit askleo.com slash designing my new desktop. Um, I will uh, real quick here, see if I can't come up with the, um, the article number because that's much easier for you to deal with in the podcast. It's askleo.com slash, where'd it go? 115158. Cool. Gary, you're not going to go blatant this week? I don't like, you know, my usual go, go to Mac most to see cool videos about Mac stuff. <laughs> I just, uh, just keep producing videos on different, different things. What's the last one? It's the most recent one. The, oh, yeah. Mo the, the one from today is uh, creating uh, beautiful slideshows in Keynote. You know, people love slideshows, right? They, they love creating photo slideshows. It's like one of the main, you know, most asked about topics for computers. People got their photos and they want to create these slideshows. And there's so many different ways to make them. Like, right. 
you could just in the Mac, you could just do it in the Finder. You can do it in right. Preview. You can do it in the Photos app. You can make a video in iMovie, and there's tons of other software. But Keynote, which is the PowerPoint equivalent on the Mac, um, can also be used to create uh, slideshows. And the cool thing is you can add text, you can add transitions, you could add movement, um, all sorts of stuff. So I go through basically not just like here's how to do the bare bones slideshow, but here's how to put some photos in and then make it look really nice and export it as a video. And, uh, you know, so for somebody that really wants to spend the time to make a beautiful slideshow, that's what today's video is about at MacMost. Very cool. Yep. All right. Well, we have, gosh, darn it. Look at that. I know. I know. How it's are we doing it's an now? Hour. It's exactly for a podcast that we claim was never going to be an hour. It's an hour long. We, we keep that H in the title. We are going to always just be, it's the curse. It's the curse of having the H in the title. Well, we're going to keep it. All righty, guys, the show note for this week, show note, the show notes for this week. <laughs> just one note. All of them are out at tehpodcast.com slash teh88. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at The TEH Podcast. Hey, tell a friend about us if you enjoyed uh, listening to us uh, both rant and enthuse about various technology topics. We'd love to have more folks listening to us. With that, until next week, see ya. Bye.